This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss opportunities to expand the use of telehealth and remote patient monitoring, or RPM, services. With me to discuss the topic is Mr. Jonathan Shankman, Senior Vice President of Clinical Innovation at AMC Health, a New York-based remote and real-time healthcare monitoring company. Mr. Shankman, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, David. Mr. Shackman's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, a few would argue or disagree telehealth and remote patient monitoring, again, RPM services, are woefully underutilized in healthcare delivery today. For example, in Medicare, a program that spends slightly over $700 billion annually, telehealth and RPM reimbursed services amount to approximately $30 million annually, that's four thousandths of one percent of total Medicare spending. In the recent past, however, the Congress has taken steps to improve telehealth utilization. For example, the 2017 Connect, or Creating Opportunities Now for Necessary and Effective Care Technologies Act. The Congress also passed earlier this year in February the Bipartisan Budget Act with provisions concerning telehealth. Uh, for example, expanding uh, use and community health centers. In the current or recently proposed physician fee schedule rule, CMS also recognized and proposed to pay for communication technology-based services that avoid the regulatory requirement that they are delivered via originating sites, quote-unquote, and defined in healthcare professional shortages, or shortage rather, areas only. And finally, as another example, in the current proposed home health rule, CMS floats the use of RPM to augment care planning processes. Despite these examples and others, criticisms and frustration persists. Most recognize healthcare and RPM adoption should, as the phrase is uh, noted, should not occur at the speed of government, that not being an optimal solution. With me again to discuss how telehealth adoption or use can be accelerated is Jonathan Shankman. So with that, has some orientation or background. Uh, let me ask Jonathan first if you could provide a very brief overview of AMC Health. Sure. Thank you, David. So AMC is a one-stop consultative virtual care facilitator. We are not device manufacturers, but rather uh, a software-based data source neutral information integrator with a comprehensive range of value-added complementary services that ensure the success of really any enhanced monitoring or virtual care program. Our sole purpose is really to leverage the most reliable technology out there to bridge the gaps between patients, and these are typically chronically ill patients, and their care teams. So I'd say 90% of the time that translates into putting near real-time actionable information, whatever the source, in front of a clinician to positively affect the outcomes. Um, the heart of our solution is a proprietary FDA Class II integration platform that can accommodate data really from any device, any call center, any EHR, for presentation in the web uh, in 24-7. 
We've been around about 15 years. Our clients are largely integrated delivery systems and health plans as well as IPAs, essentially any entity at risk for the costs. And as you know, the types of entities that are taking on some aspect of that risk are growing dramatically. Okay, thank you. Let's go to this adoption to date issue, as I uh, noted in the intro. And despite federal efforts to expand the use of telehealth and RPM, uh, in your mind, what has, why has utilization rather remained as limited uh, as it has? It's really an excellent question. I, I mean, sadly, and it shouldn't come as any surprise, that this really all comes down to who owns the risk. Now, when I first started uh, in this field, um, we would approach physician groups who would come and say to us, you know, we love what you're doing, it's great for patients, but please get out of my office because uh, I get paid, sadly, for uh, whatever happens to the patient. Um, thankfully, so much of that has turned on its head because these same provider groups now own some of that risk. And uh, they're, they're coming back to us and saying, okay, we have skin in the game now for the outcome of this care. Tell me how you're going, this technology is going to help me keep my patients out of the hospital. I think the federal and state efforts to increase reimbursement that you mentioned and mandated inclusion are both necessary and welcome. But that is not how you increase adoption per se. Um, and we can always draw a distinction between the types of telehealth intervention we're talking about. Uh, traditional telemedicine, which is really historically described telepresence, really tele, you know, um, uh, synchronous uh, encounters, as well as what you, you mentioned, RPM, remote patient monitoring, which is uh, largely described by store and forward information. But together they form this sort of complete whole. Um, the government entities, I think, besides just making these this legislation available, would really better serve us if they helped to promote the knowledge base more and, and really help the stakeholders understand the logic and the effectiveness of these of these tools. I think despite all that, I would argue that slow adoption is largely the result of just the perceived newness of these tools, uh, the misperception that they are onerous and disruptive in bad ways, not good ways, and, and the fact that an avalanche of unassailable data and including the unreserved endorsements of the medical societies that are establishing best practices, all of that has yet, really yet to materialize at scale. So, but you have to ask, you know, why hasn't medicine embraced virtual technologies the way retail and finance have? You know, mm -hmm. where's the Amazon? Where's, where's the Bloomberg of chronic care management? And I think part of the answer is that despite being over a fifth of our economy, Healthcare remains at its part really the, the most sclerotic, the least innovative, the most risk averse uh, segment of our economy. And sadly, paradigmatic shifts uh, in healthcare are really measured in decades as opposed to months in, in the other sectors of our economy. Um, I hope that there are enough salient examples of stellar successes with telehealth that the holdouts are really going to come out of their shells. You know, I wouldn't disagree, but you'd have to say it's quite. Um, uh ironical that an industry that sells itself on innovation and cutting edge, leading, bleeding, no pun intended, has been the last to adopt uh, these technologies again. And many of them, there's absolutely no newness uh, whatsoever. In fact, it's the common phrase in every other technology and well understood is machine to machine, right? Um, you don't ever hear that phrase uh, 
in, in healthcare, I find that extremely odd. In any event, I do appreciate your point about uh, there was no financial incentive. Uh, you know, uh, we're going, as the phrase is, pay for uh, volume to pay uh, for value. Let's, let's go to um, business examples or business cases. Uh, and I was appreciative of one of your uh, blogs that you posted earlier this year on your company's uh, website. You noted providers, as you already suggested, are being, quote-unquote, on the hook for outcomes. And the shift to, and maybe it would be useful to explain this phrase in context, a shift to adaption to, quote-unquote, you term it, the wild. Right, yeah, it's not my term. I love that term. It's really the wild describes uh, any care venue that isn't a bricks-and-mortar care facility, whether it's a hospital or an ambulatory clinic setting. The wild is really, um, you know, home, school, workplace. Uh, and it is the wild where uh, uh, chronic disease is played out. Um, I think the only thing that will really change, uh, will get change to happen quicker, is to make providers, like you said, feel even more pain for the outcome of the care and have it coupled with the realization that they have essentially run out of tools in their toolboxes in how they practice medicine. You know, honestly, it has not changed fundamentally in the past 50 years. I'm talking about the practice of medicine. It's still reactive, not proactive. It still issues innovation until... Really, the evidence is just overwhelming. I mean, that's how risk-averse we've become. I am, however, more hopeful than I've ever been. Um, we are seeing a perfect alignment of, of incentives uh, really materialize in front of our eyes. I mean, you have incentives increasing uh, in a wide variety of at-risk arrangements. Some are more carrots and stick, depending, you know, whether it's a direct penalty for the outcome of care or... Maybe it's part of an accountable care shared savings, meaning practitioners and systems get to take home more money if they keep patients out of the hospital. But, um, you know, honestly, uh, you know, you're seeing this happen at the same time that you have a maturation of the technology. Um, it's getting easier to use. It's more reliable. And now leaven all that with what we are facing as a country and a planet uh, in terms of the shortage of healthcare assets. So, you know, never before in my career have I seen these incentives come together like this, and so I'm really, really hopeful. But the bottom line is that entities who, who used to not be on the hook for outcomes are now so. And they are realizing that they have to extend the reach beyond the walls of their hospitals and their clinics to manage that risk, whether they like it or not. And because guess what? That is where people get sick. It is in the wild mm -hmm. where chronic disease careers, as a mentor of mine, Dennis Codner, used to call them, their careers play out in the wild. You do not get sick standing in front of a doctor in a clinic. Right. So your point's well taken. The, the increasing distance between supply and demand, particularly with uh, increasingly chronic uh, diseased uh, population. I just read today uh, diabetes prevalence is north of 10%. 4% of that is uh, individuals who are unaware they actually have the disease. Let's go to case studies or examples, always uh, helpful. You note in your work, uh, work with, um, this is RPM utilization, for example, New York City Health and Hospitals, their so-called house calls program. And of course, there's always work. Interestingly enough, the leader probably as a system is the VA uh, in this instance. But just what would be some uh, illustrative examples? Well, 
what's wonderful is that some of these examples are just so diverse. I mean, um, who you know, these uh, early adopters to this technology are really uh, uh, cutting their own path in how they deploy these technologies to an extremely diverse array of populations. And, you know, everybody has a different stone in their shoes, I like to say, um, clinically. Um, the populations are different. You mentioned the VA. They, of course, absolutely pioneers in this space. Um, they, I think there's no other, uh, they're probably the largest consumer of telehealth uh, on the planet. Um, although they have dominated predominantly in, they have done a great deal in RPM, uh, but they also have all pioneered uh, uh, instances of remote care, uh, synchronous remote care for uh, remote diagnostics, remote treatment, remote uh, consultation. Um, New York City Health and Hospitals, that was a really innovative program that really relied on uh, more, more on the store and forward model. And what was innovative uh, with New York City Health and Hospitals is you have to understand they're the largest municipal plan in the country and uh, very much affected by Medicaid. And being a political entity, they were faced with really what's nothing short of pandemic diabetes in the New York City Medicaid population that they serve. And, as you know, medic uh, diabetes is, you know, really a forgotten step dialed. Um, it's not always uh, the, the main cost driver for health plans and so forth. But they had a political mandate to do something. And it occurred to them this would be the Medicaid health plan arm of New York City Health and Hospitals, that rather than go to some outside entity that, uh, you know, uh, deals with diabetes, that they were sitting on top of, of a, a world of high-skilled assets in their own home care divisions that knew how to take care of patients who are sick in the community, how to educate them and so forth. The problem is it was all very manual, millions of phone calls and home visits. And so they approached, uh, and they approached my organization uh, to understand how even very fundamental telehealth technologies can extend their reach. That's what it really was about, extending the reach multiplying and broadening what they're already doing extremely well. So in their case, it was a very inexpensive model of biometric data collection for glucose, blood pressure, and so forth, as well as using uh, something like telephonic IVR to automatically query patients to solicit what we call soft data or patient self-reported data on symptoms, on behavior, but at the same time, use that same technology to dramatically extend their reach to educate patients in a very focused way. And you're talking about an extremely um, uh, healthcare illiterate population when it came to diabetes especially. Uh, you know, these are disenfranchised people who uh, at, at, the, um, uh, at the very least had, you know, very poor understanding of the role of medication, of exercise, of diet, and so forth. And so they were able to use this technology to uh, not supplant live telephone interactions or even face-to-face -face interactions, but to extend the reach and ex dramatically extend the touches. Long story short, they were able to uh, see realizations of, uh, uh, on the whole, uh, well over full 1.5 points of uh, A1C reduction. That, that includes everybody, whether they dropped out or not. But for those who stayed through the program, the average uh, glycemic improvement was a full 3.3 points of A1C, and that is just very dramatic. Yes, that is substantial.
That's right. Yes, correct. So let's go to, uh, with your last uh, comment, let's uh, speak further about what, what outcomes can we see or have we seen and can we expect beyond just um, A1C control. Uh, this gets to substantial issues about hospital admissions, readmissions, lengths of stay, ED visits, etc. I know from uh, my years of study, telehealth has demonstrated such, again, in the VA uh, what are some examples of what are you, you're seeing uh, with some statistical significance? Sure. So where I'm sitting, I, I, I see unequivocal outcomes, both in terms of clinical indicators like blood pressure and glycemic control or medication adherence uh, or, or improved disease literacy, et cetera. But what we're really seeing and we're, you know, uh, uh, we really make the most dramatic impact in utilization outcomes like reduced hospitalizations and costs. Now, when an implementation is done right, and that's a very loaded word because so many are just sort of thrown together without any serious design insight, I am shocked to see less than 20% reductions in all-cause admissions compared to controls. And what I found sort of very, you know, really maddening lately um, is when I hear that there's just not literature out there to support this, and it, it really drives me crazy because there, that is absolutely not true. Um, you know, sadly, um, clinicians tell us that uh, they'll only respect large randomized controlled trials, RCT studies, um, although I think that they're being myopic, but, but fine. If, if that's, you know, really your standard mm-hmm. uh, in laboratory conditions, there are indeed some, you know, really well-designed RCT studies. Uh, mostly in Europe are the, the large ones. Uh, we're extremely late to the party. Um, in telehealth uh, compared to Europe. Um, and we at AMC, indeed, we, we've published uh, one in JAMA, an RCT study. That's, um, but these studies really um, uh, support, uh, especially in the European studies, the RCT studies. I mean, going back to 2011, you have the, the TINA study in Belgium that showed deaths and hospitalizations cut in half. Dutch studies, the Boyne study, uh, you know, you're talking statistically significant, you know, Nine percent uh, admissions versus close to fourteen for those uh, in the in the control arm, um, and it goes on and on. There's the the uh, the Caris project uh, in Italy. Hospitalizations were cut nearly in half in our RCT study. Um, Barcelona, recent, more recently in 2016, um, uh, cardio uh, admissions cut in half. Um, so these studies are there. I don't, I'm not even getting into all the retrospective controls that I think are just extremely well-crafted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, what's the heart of the skepticism? And you have to ask yourself, why does it work? Let's assume it works. Why does it work? And, you know, this isn't some radical new drug or some new protocol. And it all comes down to the kindliness of care, right? You either believe that being armed with the ability to detect pre-acute trends far enough upstream of, of an adverse event or decompensation that you can steer resources and mitigate that in a much more timely, far less costly way. You either believe that or you don't. And I've heard clinicians state that, you know, no amount of predicate data will ever keep a person out of the hospital. You know, I think that's nuts, but, you know, it's, and it's certainly not supported by any data. But honestly, there are people who, who, who believe that. And... I think it all comes down to how these programs are set up, you know, how the telehealth data is woven into clinical workflows and so forth. So, you know, one thing I want to, you know, leave with your 
with your listeners is, you know, this technology isn't magic. Somebody has to act on this data. It can never be about the technology. This is about, you know, are you seeing uh, uh, insidious increases in thoracic buildup, you know, from, for a heart failure patient? Are you seeing concerning just the earliest trends of non-adherence to a care plan? Are you seeing the earliest trends of misunderstanding of self-care? Are you seeing, you know, the, the salient uh, variability in blood pressure or, or glucose that leads to decompensation? And can you intervene in a less costly, more timely way? But, of course, it all comes down to who's going to act on that data and, uh, and mitigating it the most timely way. Right. Timing is everything relative, as you suggest or say, um, to um, chronic disease expression. So absolutely. You suggested this, but I do have a, a maybe a, a more weedy question still, and that is help us understand what would you say are sort of common uh, critical success factors in this process? I mean, again, the hardware installation, the hardware use, that's all tested, reliable. But what are the variables that are critically key to actually beyond the collection of the data, but the action or response to uh, what the data is telling the clinician. Right. And I'd say, I mean, the good news is it's pretty straightforward. And I think it all comes down to program design. And that means understanding, I mean, of all the successful teleprograms I've seen, they share and they've all been extremely diverse, different populations, different problems. They share a common thread, and that is, at the end of the day, as I said, it's not about technology, but but process, clinical process. So it comes down to modeling, um, making sure that those workflows uh, are understood beforehand, who you're going after, of course, all predicated on, on reams of data, um, and, of course, that data supporting who has historically been successful uh, in terms of patient profiles on these programs, and then understanding and getting that practitioner uh, to understand where this sits in their workflow, and most importantly, uh, in a way that doesn't subvert what they're already doing very well, right? They have to be given an opportunity to visualize how these tools are going to work within existing clinical workflows and just how it's going to extend the reach of what they're already doing very well. If, if for one second they feel that this is going to be an impediment right. to what they think is going well, you're, you're lost. So we have to just work hard to show them uh, that this this is going to make what they're doing well more scalable, more effective, because, you know, soon enough, they won't have the human assets to address the multiplying needs that are out there. You know, they, they just won't be able to hire the armies of nurses to do the, the recommended number of touches, and then they'll be playing catch-up. But I guess, you know, at the end of the day, this isn't about, you know, finding better technologies necessarily or easier to use. It all comes down to workflow and project design. And, you know, the more time you spend up front on the project design before you even see a single patient come on, uh, the better the chances of success. It's not crudely about doing more. It's about doing what you're doing more efficiently. Right. Yes, exactly. Well, uh, Jonathan, we're at our time boundary. So let me just ask, finally, if you could echo further your cause or reason for optimism, if you could restate or renote that. I would like to leave this, the listeners encouraged on, uh, let's see, some acceleration in the use of these tools. 
Sure. What I would recommend you, um, you know, research uh, the explosion of models of those early adopters out there and see the good work that they're doing in very focused therapeutic areas, whether it's everything from, you know, heart failure management to oncology. We're seeing really innovative use of the technology for things like speech therapy. Um, it's really incredibly encouraging to see how creative people can be. Again, at the end of the day, those who are succeeding, and I recommend those who are entertaining, investing in these processes and these technologies, to first think about what is the information that you're trying to distill from the wild, and then work with those partners who can help you get the most appropriate technologies at the right price point because they are out there, they are tested, they are begging to be used, and they work. Okay. With that, and Jonathan, thank you again for this overview. Very much appreciative and very helpful. It's been a pleasure. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.